Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. Hey there, First Gen Faithful. Good to get back on the airwaves talking to you on this here podcast, the best podcast you can treat your ears to. Available on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and in a sundry of other platforms. If you look it up, you'll probably find it. Except one place that you won't find it is Spotify, but that is hopefully going to be changing here very soon so uh, if you're a, a, a spotify loyalist i hopefully will have some good news for you here soon that we will be up there but as most good news that i promise it usually comes like six months later because yeah life's crazy right now uh, a little update on the uh, house situation uh, the good news is i actually own a house now for a while there we were I don't know if you'd say homeless because we had a place to rest our weary heads and boy are they weary because we have done a whole bunch of work. Hopefully you've been following along on the First Gen Hunter social media pages, Instagram and Facebook. Namely, I haven't posted any of the updates on uh, Go Wild. You know, I should do that though. I think there's uh, some some, uh, trails on Go Wild where you can do like DIY stuff and I think they probably mean like hunting and fishing but hey there's been a whole lot of DIY work going on this farmhouse and uh, we are far from done one of my favorite poems uh, Robert Frost miles to go before I sleep is how that famous poem ends and uh, that's kind of how I feel miles to go before I sleep but you know what I found some time to wedge in some outdoor activity, some outdoor-related activity. I've done a little target shooting. I feel like really good about my wing shooting right now. I was just crushing the clays about a week and a half ago with uh, some good friends that came to help me get some work done. Um, I've hung two stands. I now have a place to hunt. (laughs) I wasn't just going to have to do all ground hunts. So I have two stands up. Big thank you to my wife for helping me with the ladder stand that I'll use primarily for early muzzleloader. And uh, then uh, a new friend that uh, I've already uh, hit it off with here where I moved to, my friend uh, Russell. He uh, helped me hang my second stand just last night. And it's actually uh, kind of funny, uh, kind of like a, uh, I felt like I needed to hand over my man card a little bit. Um, we were putting up some uh, climbing sticks, some like uh, permanent climbing sticks, you know, the aluminum four-piece set that all pieces together into a giant long uh, set of climbing steps, really. Well, I'm struggling through that, you know. Got it in this nice walnut tree uh, in a place where I have some really, I, I mean, dozens and dozens of bucks have passed by uh, in years past and uh, a lot of rub signs there Um, I don't think I've ever had a scrape there which is kind of weird because uh, it'd be a great spot for there to be a scrape maybe I should put a mock scrape down but um, anyways I'm climbing up this walnut tree struggling along there on my climbing sticks 
and uh, all of a sudden I like turned to my left and there's Russell <laughs> and Russell didn't have any climbing sticks he just just pulled himself up onto that limb and climbed up right up next to me it's like oh hey <laughs> I had to take you know the uh, actual implement that I'm chaining to the tree right now and uh, had to use that to get up here so I felt kind of uh, I don't know stupid but it's probably a little bit safer way than the Russell way but anyways he was uh, kind enough to climb up all the way into the tree with me and uh, you know I was just hoping he'd like hand sticks up to me and throw ratchet straps at me and things like that but no he was up in the tree helping me hang the stand and uh, went uh, a whole lot better having somebody there with me so uh, make sure though if you're getting out you're uh, having some fun like that but also being safe there's a couple times where it's like whatever you do can't do not fall you just can't fall there's life is too busy right now for you to be falling out of a tree and so uh, I, uh, I felt a little bit on the edge from time to time with it but safely I uh, got up and down the tree got the tree stand in and I really feel pretty good about where it's at um, hopefully I don't I shouldn't say too much more though uh, because you know then it'll just make it not work out but but I, I think it's a good spot access is a little bit tricky but I'll, I'll get it figured out but anyways that's uh, kind of what's been going on in uh, my my world um, I'll uh, have some more pictures to put up of some of the other outdoor stuff that I've been doing here as of late here soon on social media uh, but tonight this is the last night of summer for me and if you've been listening to the show long enough and heard me babbling on about how summer is my fourth favorite season well one of those reasons it, for it being my fourth favorite season is not because I am off work as a teacher <laughs> that part is the nice the nice consolation part to uh, the blazing and let me emphasize that again the blazing heat and even more so the oppressive humidity that has uh, set in here in Iowa corn sweat is in full swing uh, we were driving home this evening and you could just see the haze of humidity hanging over the, the corn it was uh, really a sight to behold and even more so a, an experience to feel so uh, that that all reinforces uh, why summer is not my favorite season but uh, summer the part that does make it good the summer vacation for us teachers and of course students as well is come to an end tomorrow I go back to work at a new place doing a slightly different job um, still a science teacher uh, but uh, took a job at a middle school this time around and uh, I'm really excited for it. I think it'll be fun to uh, teach a, a different age group. So far, all my years as a teacher have been in the high school level, which I love. Um, but I'll be uh, uh, teaching at a mis middle school this time around. So I'm looking forward to that new opportunity. And uh, part of that, I stopped by an environmental center here in our new county that we live in. And man, was that thing awesome. I really enjoyed it. Uh, checking that out and um, I think it's going to be a great resource to uh, hopefully run a field trip with my students or something cool like that in the future but uh, you know that's probably a great point for me to stop talking about myself and start talking about our guest that we were privileged enough to hear from on this episode episode number 64 of the first gen hunter podcast an interview with miss marissa jensen 
of Pheasants Forever. And Marissa uh, just gave a tremendous interview. Uh, I really had a lot of fun talking with her. And uh, what Marissa does for Pheasants Forever is she is the education and outreach manager. Now, this is not just a state-level job, which would be still critically important, but she is at the national level. So she is she is going around the country trying to help people get established as as people who care about conservation care specifically about pheasant habitat and and uh, all the other organisms that live in those ecosystems and how they're affected uh, but she's also a hunter and so she's trying to get people on board with uh, getting into hunting as well and uh, man just just again I can't say it enough truly somebody who is passionate about what they are doing and so i think you're gonna enjoy this one just as much as i did um really i gotta say one of my favorites uh that that uh i've had the privilege to uh put together so far and and uh you know just again it it reiterates the point that i've said ever since episode one it's been such a privilege to get to know all of these great people through this podcast and the things that I've learned just by uh, talking with such high level guests is uh, uh, really uh, it's, it's humbling is what it is. That's probably the best word for it, but, but it's a, uh, a thing that has certainly helped me as a hunter. And so I hope it's doing the same for you as well. And on that note, please, uh, if you do feel this podcast is helping you, uh, head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review if you feel so compelled. We would love that. That helps uh, get the podcast out to more ears. And so that's important to us. And uh, we hope that if we can get to more people, we can help more people enjoy hunting the right way and uh, in a way that is sustainable uh, long into the, the future for them. So without any more rambling for me let's get on to episode 64 here an interview with miss marissa jensen you know how there's usually one person at every work meeting who asks a billion questions, usually right when you are about to be dismissed and your brain's been running on cruise control, pretty much ignoring everything that's been discussed, solved, or new policies adopted during this staff meeting. But then they break the silence and they ask that question. Now, of course, when they ask the question, you get tempted to be annoyed and a little frustrated because, you know, you wanted to go back to, uh, you know, checking your March Madness bracket or whatever back in your office. But after they start asking that question, they ask everything that you need to know about the new policy, only their question like sums it up in 45 seconds. So in other words, they're the person that's picking up all the slack for everybody else. And then by the end of their question, you're loving that person. And so is everyone else because everyone else would have totally, you know, like gotten fired for dismissing the new policies that were adopted at the meeting. Well, that's kind of how I view wildlife support agencies or conservation agencies such as Pheasants Forever, Ducks Unlimited, the newly formed National Deer Association, um, 
Whitetails Unlimited, and on and on the list goes. These are groups of people who come together and they do the dirty work. They roll up their sleeves. They uh, drum up the funding. They are the boots on the ground. They are the people at the end of the meeting who ask the important question that keeps the business in business and uh, saves everybody else's bacon. So we should love these groups. And not only that, but the great news in this episode is we are joined by somebody who does just that. One of those heroes that I was just describing who kind of saves the conservation world in a sense in their own in their own corner. And uh, that would be Miss Marissa Jensen of Pheasants Forever. Marissa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much, Kent. Uh, I'm excited to be here. And I'm, I'm thinking that we need to make capes for everybody after you said that. Um, <laughs> it seems appropriate. <laughs> Man, you could have being pheasants forever. You know, there's like so many ornate patterns that would be, you know, like have some kind of pheasant flair to them, and uh, <laughs> you know, maybe make like a little ring neck to go around the part that goes around your neck. You could, you could, you could really run with this. I like it. I like it. I'll work on it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Now, when I when I was doing my spiel there, I hit this deer in the headlights moment. Um, where I have to describe what these agencies are. You know, it's easy to like have all these terms where we can just kind of do like a catch-all for all these different components of a certain industry. You know, you could say the auto industry or you could say um, e-commerce or, you know, uh, brick and mortar storefronts. But what do you say that groups all of these organizations into? You know, I'm tempted to say, when I'm talking about NWTF or Pheasants Forever or the National Deer Association, I'm tempted to use the term that just feels like a loaded gun when I say it. And that term is wildlife advocacy groups. But then I start to fear, well, there's some groups out there that define themselves that way who are very much so against hunting. And all of the groups that I just mentioned include hunting as a foundational part of conservation. So what is the right kind of catch-all general term for groups such as Pheasants Forever? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um, You know, and a lot of us will identify as a conservation organization. Um, And that allows us to kind of capture um, more than just the advocacy piece, which, you know, certainly um, for some of organizations, including our own, that is part of the overall picture. Um, but it also includes, you know, the boots on the ground efforts that we're making. It includes the education and outreach component. Um, it just is a, a little bit larger of an umbrella. Um, but um, it depends on each different organization. But conservation, um, you know, organization is is uh, a safer way to go, I guess. Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have that answered. Uh, I was, <laughs> I was, uh, writing, oh, let's see here. It's probably a, a little over a year ago now, but I was tasked with writing this article that was, uh, the, the editor at the time he was a great guy. I really, I really, uh, appreciate him. So I'm not criticizing him in any way, but, but he said, Hey, Kent, can you write an article on, uh, why hunters make great conservationists. <laughs> and that that felt like getting a loaded gun, maybe two loaded guns there. Uh, but one of the points I made in there is how these conservation organizations uh, have 
been largely supported by hunters and they have accomplished so much work uh, that is, you know, gone far beyond just making hunting better, but has truly helped these species thrive in uh, the modern age, an age where we see such manipulated landscapes and uh, habitat that is wildly different from pre-settlement. And yet here you guys are um, helping on uh, all these different species of wildlife that we have. And when I was writing that article, I kind of ran into that road bump. I was like, do I dare say hunters support wildlife advocacy groups? So uh, <laughs> next time I get tasked with writing a, an article like that, I can uh, rest a little easier. So I'm glad you cleared that up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, the reason that we brought Marissa on here is she has a unique story um, just from hearing a little background, doing a little reading there on on how she ended up where she is today, doing the work she is. But really her job at Pheasants Forever, we're definitely going to do a, a deep dive into this here uh, pretty soon, but her job is like hand in hand with what the main goal of First Gen Hunter is, which is to to get new people involved in this wonderful world of hunting and not just the trigger pulling part of hunting, but a true appreciation for the, the various species that you're interacting with while you're in the field, not just the game, but the, the grasses, the trees, the, um, the, the insects, uh, other non-game species, all of that goes into having a better appreciation for uh, our wild places here in North America. And uh, Marissa is is very much so involved with expanding that. And so it's just a, a perfect interview for, for our show. So we'll definitely get into that. But Marissa, I would like to hear more about your story, and I'm sure the listeners would as as well. But we're going to get there here in just a second, because I want to really kind of kick things off with what Pheasants Forever is. Because if there is somebody who's either a brand spanking new hunter, or somebody who maybe has zero hunting background or experience, and they, they aren't even sure if they're going to try it yet, and they just happen to be tuning in, they might be wondering, what on earth does Pheasants Forever mean? And so could you kind of... Uh, tell us what Pheasants Forever is and maybe, you know, talk a little bit about how it started, when it started, that kind of general background stuff. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, Pheasants Forever, it, it began um, officially in 1982. And, you know, really it's, it's because of passionate hunter conservationists that um, were we started then and that we're here today. Um, and so, you know, a group of pheasant hunters made that connection between, you know, the upland habitat loss and declining pheasant populations and said, hey, you know, we, we need to do something about this. Um, and so, you know, we, we have the umbrella kind of term for our organization as well as um, Quail Forever and that it's the habitat organization. Um, and so we're a nonprofit conservation group um, that then in 2005, as I mentioned, Quail Forever, we brought um, that organization, that the Quail Division of Pheasants Forever um, under our hat. And, you know, really our mission is to conserve quail, pheasants, and a variety of other wildlife through habitat improvements, public access, education, and conservation advocacy. There's your word for you. There it is. I like it. <laughs> um so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's incredible. We have um, 
more than 175 biologists across the country. Um, And a lot of people don't recognize that about the organization. So we have a lot of boots on the ground efforts um, through that team. We also have over 130,000 members across the country um, and over um, 750 local chapters who are making huge impacts on the landscape as well on a local level, on a regional level. Um, So there's just a lot of really incredible things happening with all these different people who are passionate about the same things. And it might be hunting, it might be water quality, it might be monarch butterflies, but they know that everything is connected. Um, and so by working together, we can make a really big difference. Yeah, that I, I like that. That that really sums it up well. And, and from being somebody who's been a member of Pheasants Forever for quite some time now and somebody who's been observing it from the outside even before that, I've definitely noticed those things to be true and have been impressed by many of those things. But I did not realize you had that many biologists. That's awesome. 175. And and across the country too, huh? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's just a remarkable team. And they're working on everything from, um, you know, one-on-one efforts with landowners to, um, you know, working lands for wildlife, where you talk about prairie grouse species, um, we're involved with the sage grouse initiative. So it's just a very broad, um, but also very targeted, I shouldn't necessarily say broad, but just an incredible effort sure. across the country with everything they're doing. So, um, and that number is probably outdated, they just continue to grow that team rapidly. Yeah, that's that's really fantastic, and it and it highlights a couple things. Uh, you know, the fact that a pheasants and quail they inhabit a large part of our country now, and uh, uh, you know, just the different habitats that they can they can uh, hack it, and if we give them what they need, allow them to have what they they need is probably a better way to say it. And um, also, just the commitment to really having a thorough understanding of how to make our country as a whole a better place for these species and uh, really getting people who are specializing in all the nuanced places around our really pretty diverse country. And uh, I think that's, I think that's really cool. And it is an important thing that, that people know about. So thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Now, you mentioned there um, a, a nonprofit and, you know, I think at this point in age, since, you know, you know, nonprofits used to have to survive on telethons and uh, <laughs> door-to-door <laughs> knocking and stuff like that and leaving hangers on your door and stuff like that. Now, nonprofits obviously have the advantage of social media outlet and and um, online advertising, even having websites or email campaigns and stuff like that. And so people can be tempted to probably at that point roll their eyes and say, oh boy, here comes another group asking me to uh, d- donate money and that kind of thing. But, and I'm, I'm not even going to make Marissa speak up for this part. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it here for, for, for pheasants forever as a, other than just being a member, a otherwise non-paid promotion person. It isn't like that. <laughs> it's not that pheasants forever is one of the least pushy, uh, nonprofits. Uh, they, they, they truly w- 
only want you if you want to be involved. It's they're not they're not forcing you into anything or or twisting your arm or anything like that. And even more important than that, because if you do get annoyed by that, you need to stop being worried about such petty stuff, probably. <laughs> but uh, the, even more important than that is they use that money very wisely, and it uh, it it goes to what you are hoping that it's going to go to. Uh, by the way, if anyone hears like any kind of like little nursery rhyme jingles going in the background, my kids are like right outside the door. So sorry about that. But but that money goes to what you want it to go to. It's going towards habitat. It's going towards um, education of new hunters. It's going towards uh, purchasing land even and uh, uh, developing public areas in some cases uh, into better uh, habitat for wildlife. And so uh, could you kind of explain that part of it a little bit, Marissa, where, where how the funding, and, and this is quite different from other uh, conservation advocacy groups and how these funds are are kind of split up with this very local model. Could you kind of explain that, please? Yeah, absolutely. So our chapter model, um, you know, is similar kind of to how the organization started as a whole um, from the ground up. And so it's a, a grassroots model that allows Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever chapters to retain 100% of the decision-making um, control over their locally raised funds. So hmm. when a chapter has a fundraising event, whether that's a banquet or you know a raffle or whatever it may be, um, they can then decide how they want to utilize that at a local level. If there's you know habitat that they want to improve. In their region, if there is, you know, a learn to hunt, learn to shoot type event that they want to hold, um, it just allows them that possibility to um, see their hard work come to fruition. And I think that that's been really inspiring for a lot of people. And it's inspiring for us to see that um, and to really allow that that ownership um, of their efforts. Yeah. Definitely. And I've actually heard somebody um, really sing the praises of that. Uh, somebody else who is uh, involved in in uh, work, not not for Pheasants Forever at the time, but another group, he really praised that about Pheasants Forever was, was that model that Marissa just described there. So, uh, yeah, I think that's important for people to know about. That's why I brought it up. I know it's kind of one of those, uh, <laughs> those touchy things, you know, it's like, uh, why do, why do people quit going to church somewhere? Because they, they feel like, uh, the church is asking for money all the time or something like that. But, but it's one of those, uh, those touchy subjects, but I'm, I'm glad we could address that there and, and, uh, really show how uh, pheasants forever takes, takes what's given to them very seriously and uh, they're good stewards of that so uh, and, and it's it goes to what you want it to go to so I'm, I'm glad that we could we could touch on that now another part there that I did kind of mention in my uh, little spiel there was uh, hunter outreach that's also a big part of of uh, pheasants forever and and we're gonna obviously dive into that a lot more in this episode but um, that's a that's a major priority of pheasants forever w would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, definitely for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, as you mentioned, conservation funding um, and hunting, they go hand in hand. And, you know, everything from helping um, educate 
individuals on what that connection is to helping them get their foot in the door and try hunting mm. if they've never done it before or even to become a mentor. Um, so, you know, we're a part of the process from the beginning to the end and, um, you know, creating wildlife for hunter or wildlife habitat, excuse me, for hunters, um, you know, that's ties back to a lot of what we do. So um, we're not a hunting organization, um, but we are an organization that is um, supports hunters mm. and, um, you know, wants to help grow more hunters, especially as, um, you know, we're very involved in R3, recruit, retain, and reactivate, and recognize the um, challenges that we face as a country with hunter numbers declining and what that means for conservation and funding. Yeah. Um, so we're very involved with it. We have, um, many positions that work specifically towards that. Um, so it's, it's something that is very important. Yeah. And I love that about pheasants forever as well. And it is something that I agree with you is, is an important thing to, uh, uh, put time and, and even financial contribution towards, uh, just, just to, uh, try to hang on to that and build on that for, uh, the future of, of conservation, the future of, of even hunting. And so, uh, I, I really appreciate that. Well, that was a good, uh, discussion on just some good general nitty gritty details on pheasants forever. Uh, but let's hear more about, uh, Marissa Jensen. Um, how did you get your start with hunting? Was that something you grew up with or, uh, did you, uh, kind of find your way as a first gen hunter at, at some point? Yeah, so I did not grow up in a, uh, a hunting um, household and uh, was actually pretty opposed to it most of my life. Oh, wow. Um, I always feel kind of awkward saying that, but I think, um, you know, I think it's important to share that with people because it's a, a very good example of Definitely. how when you approach conversations with an open mind that you never know whose opinion you might be able to um, you know, how, how you can tell somebody something differently and they might hear it differently. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of how it happened for me. And so I didn't start hunting until I was 30 and it, it was really kind of just being able to enjoy the outdoors, which is something I've loved my entire life. Um, but then the food component and especially for the uplands, the bird dog component, um, everything just kind of all pointed to I needed to be a part of this. Hmm. Um, and so it, it's, it wasn't necessarily an easy journey for me, which is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about helping others find their path to the outdoors. Um, you know, it, it, it was challenging to find a mentor. It was challenging to find the resources that I needed. And, um, I actually did a lot of it myself. And, hmm. um, fortunately I'm a very stubborn person when I get my my mind, um, set on something. And so I just continued, um, regardless of some of the challenges I faced and, you know, it's, I say this, uh, not lightly, but it was life changing. Um, I mean, it, I went from being a veterinary technician to, um, now working for pheasants forever and quail forever, because I'm so passionate about hmm. what I do and educating others. So, um, it's been a really cool experience and, uh, I hope, I know there's a lot more out there. Uh, the more that I, individuals I talk to about, uh, my journey, there's, there's a lot of people out there that are 
that are just starting off or just considering it. Um, so hopefully the more we talk about it, the more people we can inspire. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. That's awesome. I, I love that story. Definitely. Uh, a lot of that I can relate to myself as a, as a first gen hunter. Now, I do got to ask you, you mentioned a few things there, but what did you feel was like the one thing that like, if you, the one thing that pulled the most weight for winning you over to, uh, deciding to hunt? Oh, I'm like embarrassed to say it because I know that there's certain, like people have certain labels now <laughs> for what got <laughs> you started hunting. Um, but it was knowing where my food came from. Um, yes. I just thought that was really cool that I, uh, I could, you know, cook a meal for myself and my family and just like relive the entire experience, know where it came from. And just, I don't know, that was so cool for me. That was really what I finally listened to when somebody was explaining, that's where I finally was like, Oh, okay. I, I, I hear you and I kind of want to try it now. That's no, I'm, I, I love that answer. I actually just released a interview today uh, with Nick Otto of the Huntivore podcast. Uh, so that'd be episode number 63. And uh, we, we discussed that at length. Um, that's kind of his, that's his mission. That's how he got started. That's how he started the hunt of war, uh, project that he's, that he's doing. It, it was because of the food. That's what got him into it. And he feels like that's such an important avenue for people to, uh, decide to, to hunt. And I've seen other groups like, uh, uh, now the national deer association with their field, to fork programs where they've, they've leveraged that, you know, that people are wondering, yeah, where does my food come from and how is it, how is it uh, handled? How is it processed? How, you know, they want to be more in tune with all of that instead of so removed from it. So I think that's a yeah. fantastic answer. So, and Mark Norquist, another guy that I've uh, interviewed on the podcast uh, about a year ago with modern carnivore up in Minnesota, uh, same deal. So I think that that's a that's a great answer there. So uh, you started you started hunting kind of uh, at well as an adult and and uh, figuring it out on your own as you said and, and not with not necessarily with a ton of guidance from mentorship or or anything like that. So if you're listening to this as an experienced hunter, see you <clears throat> what you do have to say matters. Don't listen to what your uh, <laughs> what your teenager says to you at home. Uh, you you do know what you're talking about. So get out there and, and take somebody in under your wing, but um. Uh, what species, uh, did you really get started with and what do you enjoy hunting today? That's so good question. The, the very first bird, um, very first animal I hunted was a turkey. Hmm. Uh, so kind of in tangent with the, you know, I was kind of opposed to hunting. I also had, um, a little bit of a fear apprehension with firearms. Sure. Um, I just didn't grow up with in a family that had firearms. I was never really taught how to shoot a gun. Um, the one experience I had with a shotgun as far as shooting one, it just, I wasn't instructed very well and I didn't enjoy it. Mm. So I really wanted to become a bow hunter. Um, but I, uh, my cousin convinced me to try Turkey with a shotgun first. And it was, you know, I can say this now, so many years afterwards, it was probably the best turkey hunt I'll ever have. I mean, it was just <laughs> the perfect, you know, Tom coming in, going back and forth, not committing, strutting, calling. I mean, everything. It was amazing. Um, 
so you know i was hooked after that and i was hooked before i even you know shot the bird it was just experiencing the woods waking up and everything Mm. that you know every turkey hunter understands it's just it was remarkable but the you know i've i was a vet tech for most of my professional life prior to um, working in conservation and did a lot of work with um training and working dogs and so bringing in bird dogs as part of that was just it it just made sense and i was really excited about it um so that's how i started with upland hunting and pheasants were the first bird um, that i pursued for upland hunting Uh, i will say that I love pheasant and quail hunting, but prairie grouse is really where my heart is. Oh, uh, okay. We have, I, I love hiking and, you know, prairie grouse hunters know that you're going to put in some serious miles to find the birds. Um, awesome. And then I live in Nebraska. And so uh, we have the sandhills of Nebraska. And if you haven't experienced the sandhills, I strongly encourage it, or at least, you know, looking it up online to see it. I mean, it's just, most people think of Nebraska as a flat state and it is just an incredibly beautiful area. And, uh, so I could, I could spend my entire season just walking in the Sandhills, Nebraska for greater prairie chickens and, and sharp-tailed grouse, and I would be happy. <laughs> um, so that's, that's where I try to spend most of my time if I can. Oh, that's a that's a great answer, and I agree with you. the The Sandhills is unlike anything else you will have ever experienced. It's almost like going onto another planet. And I we drove yeah. we drove through that part of the state when I was, I think, a freshman in high school on our way out west, and uh, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. We went, I remember we stayed at uh, the Jeffco Inn in Gordon, Nebraska, on our <laughs> way up there, and. Uh, that was kind of a cool little town, Gordon, Nebraska. Um, yeah. Pre- pretty close to the border, I think, isn't it? With, uh, let's see, what, what's on the other side of the border there? Is that Wyoming or South Dakota? Or- uh, it might be right up in that corner, if I'm remembering correctly. I, I'm not as familiar with Gordon, but, um, you know, a lot of those, that that's part of the allure and, like, the fun of going to the Sandhills is some of those small towns, too, and just, like, oh, yeah. the hole-in-the-wall diners, and I love, I love, because I'm from a, a big city, and I love going to different small towns and seeing the different waves. Sure. Um, and, you know, what? like, the one-finger wave, the two-finger wave, the, the hand <laughs> wave, like, every, like, every small town has their own special wave. I don't, I love it. I absolutely love it. <laughs> yep. So. Their own little signature on, on how to greet you there. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> I want to be looking for that more. I, I, I live in Iowa, so uh, we have plenty of small towns around here. So yep. uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's cool. That's really cool. Well, I, I did want to cover that a little bit, you know, hunting Nebraska and I, people are probably like, you say this about Every state. Well, maybe that's because I just like to talk to people from states that are a little bit underappreciated from time to time. Uh, but uh, I say that about Arkansas. I've said it about Virginia. I've said it about um, oh, where else? Oh, New Hampshire. Um, there's just these these little some of these states where there's a strong hunting culture that exists there, but uh, you don't you don't really hear about it all that much. But some of them that's changing. And uh, one of those that I keep seeing people, uh, you know, some of these bigger channels on, on YouTube, the hunting channels I'm talking about here, obviously, they're talking a lot more about Nebraska for 
uh, whitetails for pheasants. But the biggest one I've been hearing a lot lately, which is interesting that you said this was uh, the first thing you uh, tagged, turkeys. I've heard mm-hmm. that Nebraska is just a great turkey hunt hunting state, especially for non-residents. Can you kind of give us, you know, just a paint a picture here for all that Nebraska has to offer when it comes to uh, hunting? Yeah, you know, Nebraska is kind of, it's kind of a sleeper state. Um, and I don't, you know, I think that that's shifting a little bit. And I'm, I'm sure one of these days, one of my fellow Nebraskans is going to yell at me for, for touting about the state so much. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why the secret's um, coming know, out. Yeah, it, it is. There's a lot of diversity in landscapes and species. Um, and because so Nebraska is 97% privately owned. And I think a lot of people Mm. see that and that scares them. And they think that there's nowhere to hunt. But we have um, on top of that public land that we do have, uh, we have an incredible public access walk in program. Mm. Um, So that's a voluntary program that we work with landowners um, to open up their land to um, hunting and fishing. And that's the Open Fields and Waters program. Um, and that's a partner um, a partner uh, program between Nebraska Game and Parks Commission, uh, Pheasants Forever, and all sorts of other conservation organizations. Um, so it's a huge effort across the state that has opened up over 372,000 acres. Wow. Uh, and so you you get these areas where you have, you know, public land that butts up to public walk-in access and you start getting these really big um, stretches of public access where you can really start getting into um, some opportunities. So it, it's, um, it's just a really neat state and, you know, turkeys, we have the three different species and one that a lot of people come for would be the Merriam's Mm. um, out in the Northwest portion of the state specifically um, is where the highest kind of population of those are. But um, you know, turkeys, you can get an over, over the counter tag as a non-resident and a lot of our, you know, licenses are fairly inexpensive. And so it's just, um, it's good for, for residents. It's good for non-residents. Um, you know, obviously we talk about conservation funding every time that, um, you know, we get people to come over and visit Nebraska, that's just continuing to help our conservation efforts. Mm. Um, so I, am not a big deer hunter, but we've got whitetail and mule deer and there's just, you know, you've got pheasant, you have bobwhite quail, you have, um, you know, two species of prairie grouse, but I mean, there's just something for everyone. Um, it's also a very good waterfowl state. So if you haven't checked out Nebraska, I, I promise this wasn't an intentional plug, but <laughs> <laughs> I highly recommend it. Yeah, I've I've been uh, to the uh, Nebraska. What, what is it, Nebraska? Is it? It's not DNR. Is it like Wildlife and Parks or something like that? Um, Game know. and Parks Commission. Game and Parks Commission. Okay, I've been to their website a few times to uh, look at their uh, non-res. Uh, tag options and uh, i'm definitely planning to uh cross the border cross the missouri river here one of these days and uh get over there and and uh taste and see what what uh all is is uh available to hunters there so i believe is there even a small antelope huntable antelope yeah um especially when you start you know getting out to western nebraska 
Um, there's actually quite a few out in that area. Now, I don't know how many available tags they have on those, but sure. um, yeah, you can. And we actually have bighorn sheep as well. Whoa, um, okay. Didn't now, know that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's also a small population and, and just like, um, you know, we, we've certainly had challenges with um, some um, of the respiratory disease that other bighorn mm. sheep populations across the country have had. Um, I think at this time it, it's pretty well managed. I, I could be misspeaking, so don't quote me on that. Um, but they do they do auction off um, at, at least one tag a year, I believe, on that. So um, wow. something to definitely check out. And, and even if you um, aren't interested in hunting them. It's just, it's really neat to go see the bighorn sheep in the, in the state. Man, that is, that is really cool. And, you know, when you think about it from a geography standpoint, it kind of makes sense that there's so much diversity there because the, I believe, um, Nebraska, isn't Nebraska officially considered like the starting point of the West? So I, I think it's, are you guys considered a Western state or are you still a Midwestern state? Midwestern, um, but you, I mean, you you definitely as you get out to kind of like the Panhandle area, that northwestern area. I mean, you're hitting Colorado, you're hitting Wyoming and South Dakota, yeah. and you're moving up into that um, like that geographical landscape. And you'll see it when you go out to um, like Fort Robert Robinson State Rec, um, and we've got a, a geological park called Toadstool, and it it looks like the surface of the moon. I mean, it's just hmm. very unique landscapes. Um, so yeah, you get, a, you get a little bit of everything, which is really neat. And especially if you're looking for diverse populations, um, to kind of target for hunting, it's, there's a lot of different options here. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's kind of the confluence of the West and the Midwest. I, I it seems like to me, you know, all these, these diverse species of game, such a diverse landscape, so much more than just a, uh, acre after acre of corn. Like, uh, yeah. you may see if you, uh, cross the state on interstate 80, go north of 80 to see the, the sand hills and, um, you know, really, really explore that state. There's, there's a lot to, lot to be enjoyed there in Nebraska. So yeah, I'm glad we uh, sung the praises there. Sorry to all the <laughs> native Nebraska uh, listeners who uh, now your secret has been told. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> Caribou, elk, moose, antelope, coos deer, trophy whitetails, oryx, sika deer, doll sheep, and mule deer. What do all these critters have in common besides their delicious backstraps? They can't all be hunted in the same state, meaning that at least one of these game species will require you to purchase a non-resident hunting license and tag in order to hunt them. Now the rules of the tag application game are wildly diverse from state to state. And if you are looking to complete a bucket list hunt, you are going to want some help to make sure you are setting yourself up for the best opportunity possible. And that's where tag application and hunt planning agent Alex Gruen of East to West Hunts can really help you out. If you've listened to any of the episodes we've had here on the First Gen Hunter podcast with our buddy Alex, then you know there isn't anyone who cares more about the details of tag acquisition than him. 
Alex not only will help you through the hoops of the tag application process, but he will also help you plan the details of your trip that will get you where you need to be in order to have your best chance at filling your tag. And he is offering a 10% discount for First Gen Hunter podcast listeners such as yourself. All you have to do is purchase a service through his website, alexgruen.com. That's A-L-E-X-G-R-U-I-N.com and use the code FIRSTGEN10 at checkout. F-I-R-S-T-G-E-N, the number 10, and you will receive 10% off the hunt of your lifetime. You mentioned in there a little bit, your time working as a vet tech, you had some experience with uh, dog training that's gone into that. And obviously that is, that is such a big world, the dog training world. Um, you could be training dogs for show. You could be training dogs to be service or therapy dogs. You could be training dogs to find a pheasant in the field and bring it back to your hand. Uh, but uh, you, you mentioned a little bit about your experience there. How did, so, so I guess, there's two parts to my question here. What kind of training were you doing beforehand? And then uh, how did you start transitioning that over to training an upland uh, field dog? So, you know, my training really started, um, you know, professionally when I worked as a veterinary technician and I started to take on certain behavioral cases. So, Um, I would go into exam rooms and work with owners, um, if they were having behavioral problems with their pets, um, did some home visits and things like that. Um, but I really wanted to continue to learn more and do more. And so I um, brought a German shepherd over from Czechoslovakia and, Mm. um, we did search and rescue work, um, and continued search and rescue work. And I did a little bit of what's called, um, Schutzend. And so it's type of training when you think, you know, police dogs and the sleeves and the body suits where they train the dogs to bite. So I did a little bit of that work as well. Oh, um, very cool. Yeah. And it, it's something I'm very, very passionate about. It takes a, it takes a lot of effort and, and time. Um, so it's something that's kind of been put on pause for now, but someday I, I fully intend on, on getting back into that. Um, but it's really interesting. So, you know, with bird dogs, a lot of the prey drive and the hunt drive and the the training techniques are not that different than what we utilized for search and rescue. Um, so it's been really interesting and fun to, um, kind of have the ability to work with this completely different breed of dog, um, very different type (laughs) of personalities than I'm used to. Um, but you know, have a lot of the same like guidance for them. And, you know, I have, I have two, um, German short-haired pointers and it's just been fun to kind of know the different personalities and the different, you can hear one in the background there. (laughs) Yes, you do. (laughs) Um, So, you know, one of them came to me, I, I got her at three years of age. She had a previous owner and we really kind of helped teach each, teach each other. Hmm. Um, she had a lot of the um, hunt experience, but I didn't. Um, sure. I was I was still fairly new, and 
it took a long time. You get into some of that really thick pheasant cover and you can't see your dog. And um, it took a long time for me to feel confident and build the trust between us where it was like, okay, I know that you're going to come back. (laughs) (laughs) And I, and I have faith in, in the recall and I have um, that confidence that like, we're doing this together. Um, And she's, she can be pretty stubborn. And so um, sometimes it didn't work that way. And (laughs) we just navigated that. Um, And then I, I got a six month old, um, again, from a a previous home that she didn't have any hunt training. And so um, it's been a combination of um, working on basic obedience and work in the field. And then I have a, a really good friend who has helped with the um, you know, gunshot and introducing it to birds, because that's just not, that's not something I have available to me in a sure. city. Um, sure. so, you know, I haven't been as involved with every part of the process as I typically would like, but it's been working so far and, uh, I'm still learning. I think any dog handler, any good dog handler will say that, you know, it's, it's a never ending process of learning, um, and adapting and, mm. and changing expectations. So, it's, it's a ton of fun. I, I absolutely love it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've done a little work with, I got a couple, I have a Brittany and a half Brittany, half uh, poodle uh, that, that um, I've, I've done some work with and it's been very rewarding, a lot of fun and, and, and that, but you know, I, I, I should have done more. I could do more than what I have, but uh, you know, we enjoy, we enjoy hunting together every year and, and they, they definitely are, you know, better at it than I am. <laughs> but, um, That's you know, one of the things that you kind of answered this with, with your previous statement where, you know, you kind of talked about having the right expectations and everything, but what would be just like one good, maybe two, if you got two, but like uh, one or two good tips for new gun dog handlers, maybe somebody who's in the same boat as you and I, where, they don't have any hunting experience and their dog doesn't either, but they know that they have a bird dog. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's plenty of these popular dog breeds that, that people have, and they don't realize necessarily that they own a gun dog. Uh, you know, when you're talking your labs and, and golden retrievers, even like uh, your dogs, German short hairs. I see plenty of people who own those who don't, who don't hunt with them. Uh, mm-hmm. What would be to somebody who's aspiring to get into that? What would be like your, your first two tips? You know, I think the first, the most important thing is to develop a bond. Mm. Um, and that, that comes from, you know, the basics and building a groundwork, um, and, you know, spending time by going on walks and then working on recall. And that bond is really important, um, because you get to know your dog, they get to know you, you can read them better, you know, when something's up with them just by watching them. Um, I don't think that you can really be successful with a dog if you don't have that. Um, and that doesn't, when I say bond, I don't mean it has to be this dog who just, you know, is this perfect, you know, lassie type dog. Yeah. That, <laughs> yep. um, but you, but you know each other and right. um, that's going to help tremendously in the field. And then I'd say that the second tip is, to build a community, you know, and and I think that's been really important for me in the city. Um, you know, as I, I 
don't have a lot of the resources around me and being a newer hunter. And even though I have experience with working with dogs in the past, it wasn't working with bird dogs. Sure. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of organizations out there like NAVDA, um, which is a huge help and resource. And then, you know, just individuals that you meet through, you know, Pheasants Forever chapter meetings or um, different resources online. So build that community because there's there's a lot of people out there who are interested in helping whose life revolves around bird dogs that um, will give you opinions whether you want them or not. So, <laughs> Yeah. Um, there's a lot of help out there and, and just to, to seek it out because it, it could really make a big difference. Yeah, that, that's great information. And if you're listening into this and you are in that position, it may seem like this insurmountable task. But um, that's one of the nice things about, I would say, most bird dog breeds is uh, they're the they're the advanced placement type of students a lot of the times. They, <laughs> they, they are good at some self-instructing there. They have good learning instincts for a lot of this stuff and, and, uh, doing, doing those basics that Marissa just mentioned can be so helpful and, and carrying that over and, and seeing success that you wouldn't even believe you would see down the road. So yeah, that's, that's great info. All right. Well, let's, uh, kind of transition here into the main part of our uh, conversation here. And that's your work with Pheasants Forever. Uh, we talked a little bit about hunter uh, recruitment and, um, you know, kind of helping open the door to more folks who want to uh, explore hunting. Uh, so can you uh, just kind of explain um, what your job as, uh, I believe this is your title based on what I saw on, on the Pheasants Forever site and, and from talking with uh, our mutual connection, uh, uh, Bob St. Clair, um, education and outreach program Manager is that is that the official title? Correct. Yes. Awesome. Uh, yeah, that just sounds like a, a, a friend of first gen hunter right there. That title. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so so this is this is beyond just a state role. This is a this is a national role. Is that correct? Based on what I was yes. reading. Wow. So a lot of travel then. Yeah, you know, travel um, certainly hasn't been taking place as much this last year and sure. a half. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's really fun to be able to meet with people all over the country um, and, you know, help support the staff that we have all over the country um, with their, their outreach efforts. Mm. Um, and we have, we have an incredible education and outreach team um, made up of um, our hunting heritage program manager, whose entire focus is R3 um, to habitat education where um, their entire focus is on, um, you know, helping create events for a variety of audiences as it pertains to, you know, wildlife habitat, pollinators. Um, so it, it's a really diverse, you know, small group that just um, works really hard because we're passionate about what we do. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So, so, uh, within that you're working, you're, I mean, obviously there's the management component that you, that you kind of described there. Um, 
but you're doing these specific programs, right? Uh, within these, these general goals of, you know, like you mentioned with R3. And uh, again, that, that stands for recruit, retain, reactivate, correct? Correct. Um, so you're, you're looking at both new hunters that haven't hunted before. You're looking at trying to keep those new hunters that come on board, but also you're looking to these people who maybe, um, and I think, Honestly, we, I, I want to talk about this here in just a little bit. Um, during the pandemic, uh, we've talked about this many times on the show. A lot of people showed up to buy mm-hmm. hunting licenses again that that probably hadn't in a while because other things that were now canceled had previously dominated their calendars. And so uh, that's kind of the reactivate side of it, which I think is a really important Part because some of those things that keep people busy, you know, think of especially like youth sports, well, mm-hmm. eventually kids grow up and they're not playing youth sports anymore. So, you know, what are these parents going to do with their time afterwards? Well, it'd be great to get them back out hunting. So that's, I think that's a part that um, probably doesn't get as much attention from the general populace as they look at R3. They don't really think about that, that third mm-hmm. component, but I think it's a really important part of it. And, and we saw the power of that during 2020, but, but um, what, what kind of specific programs is your corner of pheasants forever uh, really utilizing to, uh, to, to hit these general targets? Yeah. So I, um, I have the, um, the ability to lead our women on the wing initiative, which is Mm. really exciting. So um, it's our opportunity to reach and engage with more women conservationists across the country, uh, which obviously is something I'm really passionate about um, just with being a new hunter and, um, you know, helping connect the dots with a lot of different individuals on how, um, you know, conservation and hunting, like we've said multiple times on the show, you know, it goes hand in hand. Um, And so as part of the Women on the Wing initiative, we have everything from an R3 focused program. So learn to hunt, learn to shoot events for these women to um, working with women landowners and farmers and ranchers on, you know, why it's important to think about wildlife habitat on the different properties that they either own or manage. Um, So it's, it's really just trying to engage a much larger, more diverse audience in everything that we do. Um, and I think that the more people that we can share this with the, the bigger influence that it's going to have. Mm, And, you know, you hit on the, you know, R3 is, is a word that, you know, we've said a few times here, but especially when you get into the hunting conservation world it's it's a an acronym that's used a lot lately Mm -hmm. because of the decline in hunters anglers outdoor participants um i'm i'm not taking into consideration 2020 because as you said we saw a huge bump up um it'll be exciting to hopefully see that continue to either sustain or grow but it's it's a guessing game at this point if that will be the case um so you know really that that second and that third R in recruit, retain, and reactivate, um, you know, we're just trying to find ways to um, put more emphasis into that. And and really in that second in retention, you know, hopefully people aren't phasing out where yeah. we have to recruit them back. Um, or, you know, there we're, there's a lot of really incredible efforts and steps out there to introduce somebody to hunting. But 
then we introduce them to it and we say, good luck. And, <laughs> and you know, there's, there's not necessarily that support, whether it's actually like handholding and helping them through it or that social support where they feel like they're involved and engaged. Um, so I think, you know, that's certainly a concentrated effort with our programs. And I think we're seeing it across the country and a lot of different organizations is how do we retain these individuals Hmm. that that huge bump we saw in 2020 how do we keep them here now that things are going back to status quo how do we convince them that they need to make time for this because it's important um and so we we focus a lot on trying to develop programs that help fit those areas of need um so that we're not just leaving people asking what what's next um, and just finding ways to continue to help and engage them. Yeah. I like that a lot. I think that, I think that's the right perspective on it. And, uh, you know, probably (laughs) really one of the reasons why, why PF has been uh, so successful with, with, uh, a lot of these programs and, and just as an over, as an organization overall. So, uh, you know, let's, let's kind of cut into that now, the, this talk of, uh, what went on in 2020, cause I do really want to hear your perspective on this. Cause you're somebody who's, who's probably pouring over this data more than the average, <laughs> the average uh, Joe out there. Uh, but, uh, you know, we did see this, this huge climb, this, I like the word to use bump in the number of tag sales and not just for hunting for fishing mm-hmm. as well. And, and I've just heard plenty of anecdotal evidence of people hitting the trail and saying, you know, man, there were way more hikers than I've ever seen before. There were way more people out camping than I've ever seen before on and on. Just the outdoors were, were a way for people to do something (laughs) when, when everything else was off limits during, during that year, uh, with your job specifically. So in this, this, especially the, the recruiting part of it, I imagine is where you would probably feel this the most. Did you, did you sense that? Did you, did you like really uh, notice that increase from your role at Pheasants Forever? You know, that's a, it's a tough question um, because a lot of the the programs that we have, um, they rely on events and events were really tricky this last year. Um, So it, I don't know that it was necessarily something that we saw from that perspective, but we adapted and we created virtual events. We um, have uh, several individuals in different states that, um, you know, all of our staff are just really innovative. And instead of saying, oh, we can't do this, it's, okay, well, what can we do differently to still make sure that we're achieving, you know, results? And so, you know, we have events that happened, you know, on on public lands or, you know, during a hunt where, you know, what's a better way to social distance than in the field. Um, so I, and I know just from, you know, my personal experience and others, you know, personal experiences that they saw a lot more people in the field. Um, so I would say that, you know, what we saw in that sense, um, reflected the data. Um, but it's a, it's tough to assess if we like, if we had that bump in participants with events just because it was challenging Mm. and every state was different on what they could and couldn't do. Right. Um, that it's kind of, it's challenging to assess that, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That's a really good point. In fact, um, I had I had rounded up a whole group of coworkers at, at uh, the the job that I'm just now leaving. Um, we were going to go and do a attend a. Uh, back then, uh, it was still known as the Quality Deer Management Association. We we're going to go to a QDMA banquet, and we had already uh, you know purchased our seats for a table. And, and all that had all the tickets uh, lined up to come in the mail and um, boom, <laughs> that was going to be like, I don't know, March 30th or something like that, oh, which is yeah. when, <laughs> when the world turned upside down, you know, two weeks before that Mark. And uh, it, it really became a serious alarming thing for these conservation advocacy groups that, that now they lost they lost some of their their biggest fundraising events of the year and i'm sure every group felt that but but through the creativity for how you guys had to redo some of these events Mm -hmm. um, i saw things like uh, online auctions i saw a lot of like big hunting uh companies out there find creative ways to help drive funds towards uh uh Organizations like Pheasants Forever and, and QDMA, I mean, I'm going to assume here, I haven't heard this specifically, but I think it probably kind of helped push the merger of the National Deer Alliance along with uh, Quality Deer Management Association to become the National Deer Association as a joint group. Um, was, was that was that a, just a really rough time for, for uh, these conservation advocacy groups? from somebody's perspective on the inside? Yeah, I think it's, I think it was certainly a challenging time for everyone. Um, and I think the the biggest thing is um, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really big on perspective. Hmm. Um, and so I think it changed a lot of people's perspectives on what works, what doesn't work and how can we adapt? Um, so I think that, you know, if organizations were set up to be able to adapt and to move quickly, that benefited them. Um, and I think I, I think there's very few businesses and organizations across the country that probably benefit, benefited from it. Mm. Um, maybe, maybe alcohol sales, <laughs> but, um, and certainly, you know, you look at the, the ammo industry and wow, that's, you know, yeah. that was a huge bump, um, for them. But, um, you know, I, it, from my understanding, you know, a lot of a lot of conservation organizations are coming out, um, they're coming out strong and if not stronger, um, mm. and that might that might not reflect financially. I, don't, I can't speak to their, you know, um, their situations, but it's taught us how to reach people in different ways. And I, I don't think that that's negative. However, you look at it um, when you have these virtual events, when you have when you have to shift and find new ways to reach more people, um, you know, what we're finding is there's a lot more people that can actually attend some of these things. Um, Mm. or, you know, we had, uh, chapters do drive through banquets during it. And, and so you, you just, you see some really incredible things and it's inspiring and it encourages you to get out and try something different. And I think that that is contagious and that we saw a lot of that this last year. So, um, it was extremely challenging for everyone, but 
um, I try to th- see things from a different perspective and how we adapted and how we changed. And I just, I think there was a lot of really cool things that came out of it. I love that perspective. That That's what I was preaching for uh, last year's school year as a teacher. Uh, yeah. There was just so many, it, it was a good opportunity to learn new things. And, uh, you know, it revolutionized how I did a lot of my uh procedure as a teacher. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's exactly right. When, when, uh, how's the old saying go, uh, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Right. And yeah, so, yeah. so uh, you can, you can learn those, you can learn those new skills and, and, uh, learn how to, how to hack it a little bit better. And, uh, yeah, I like that perspective a lot. So here's kind of a, and this can go within, uh, your job. That's, that's totally fine, but it may be broader than that. And I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. Here's kind of a, a tough question. And I didn't even, I didn't even uh, give you the courtesy of uh, previewing this one with you. So if you hate me after this interview, I, I, I don't blame you, but You're making me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so this, this should get down to like the, the thing that makes you tick as as a somebody who would define themselves as a conservationist, as a hunter, as a, uh, a sports person, an outdoors person, um, somebody who a naturalist, even somebody who who cares about the world around them, I think. But you know, talking with, within this realm, what is like the the thing that you would love to have your name on as being a critical influence for? within this world of, of hunting, conservation, you know, uh, uh, all that, like 100 years from now, if, if, if somebody said, brought up the name Marissa Jensen, 100 years from now, it w- you would love for it to be associated with your influence in, in, on, on what issue or thing. Oh, <laughs> I had to, <laughs> to think about this for a second. Um, you know, it, it's hard because a lot of the things that I would kind of knee-jerk reactions say, you know, we're doing and we're doing as an entire organization. We're doing as an entire community, um, you know, sure. making, making just coming from my background as a non-hunter, making the connections of why people who care about songbirds or birds mm. of prey or... Um, lizards and turtles, why they should care about the same things that hunters care about and how we can work together and make a huge difference. But that's an all hands on deck effort. And Mm -hmm. as it should be, um, you know, I, I think that the, it's always going to be continue, continuously important, um, extremely important to, show individuals how hunting and these these outdoor spaces that it reflects them as an individual Mm. um so that's you know women that's people of color that's young that's old that's um that they can see themselves in these spaces and that's something i'm really passionate about um so, you know, I think that my my work in those areas, it means a lot to me, but um, I'm also the type of person that is 
just one name out there. So I think just to be a part of what Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever is doing and being able to point back and say, I worked during that time and, and I was part of that, that that would mean a lot more to me than just, hey, I know her. Um, it's just, it's honestly a dream come true. My whole life, uh, you know, I wanted to work with wildlife, um, you know, everything from, uh, like the little girl's dream of whales and dolphins and pandas, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, and then I wanted to, to work in the, the veterinary field. Um, but I think working with pheasants forever and quail forever has been the first time in my life where I truly feel like what I'm doing is making a huge, significant impact on the landscape hmm. for habitat. Um, and, and that means more to me than I think probably anything I could just pick. That's awesome. I, I really, I really like that answer. That's you did well, you, you handled the curve all well. <laughs> that's good. That, that, no, that's, that's, that's a really good answer. And it shows that you're right where you're supposed to be. And when you got people, who truly believe that they're doing what they were meant to be doing. Those are the people that leave a lasting uh, impact uh, and a legacy behind that. Like you said, maybe you don't necessarily want that credit just going to uh, your own name, but uh, to the organization that you live with to the, to or work with and to the team that you're uh, working alongside of. I think that that that'll certainly happen. And uh, you know, I've heard it said many times that right now, as far as wildlife go here in North America, you know, of course you could go back to uh, the pre-settlement days and you can read all sorts of incredible accounts on on what the landscape was like when uh, Daniel Boone was running around and Simon Kenton was was helping uh, uh, get settlements established in, in uh, you know, the eastern part of the country and, and uh, some of those figures. And even when it was uh, uh, pretty much just occupied by uh, Native Americans, what the game numbers and things were like. Well, we're, we're probably not going to go back to that uh, aside from maybe some kind of uh, apocalyptic event that, that created like a reset switch. But as far as having humans spread across the North American landscape, doing the things that we do, we're kind of in the good old days of, of, uh, um, wildlife in North America. And a lot of that has to do with, with the organizational work from, uh, these conservation advocacy groups like pheasants forever and the dedicated people that are working there. So I really like your answer there. I think it, I think it plays in well to, uh, uh, what we see happening, uh, coming out of pheasants forever, which is an excellent transition point to t- cover our last topic here, which is probably the most important topic of the whole thing. Why is joining an organization like pheasants forever such an important thing for hunters to consider? Oh, I, I'm trying to think of how to word it in a way that <laughs> captures everything <laughs> because it's, there's so many reasons. It's everything from, you know, if you if you join an organization, um, obviously I'm I'm going to put the plug in for pheasants forever or quail forever. Um, yeah, definitely. You know that when you when you join that organization, you're connected with everything that we're doing. You have opportunities to engage at a local level, um, as we talked about before. You know the the dollars that you raise, you can you know see that impact. Um, you know, firsthand with uh, the efforts that you're you're putting out there, 
Um, but then it's helping, you know, you're helping to grow these organizations that have boots on the ground that are working, um, to build wildlife habitat. Mm. Um, it's sharing the passion that you have with others. I mean, think about all of the, um, individuals like us on this show that don't hunt right now, that by sharing their passion with different organizations and, you know, spreading the word about, Hey, this group's doing this and, you know, you should join that. That just continues to bring awareness to what we're doing and to why it's important. Um, you know, you don't have to be a hunter to join, uh, pheasants forever, quail mm, forever, turkey federation. Great point. Um, yeah. And it's, I think that anybody that enjoys the outdoors, even if you don't enjoy the outdoors, that you're contributing to uh, quality soil, quality air, water, all of those things that habitat make happen. Um, And so it's just continuing to spread um, the importance of these things and and why we're all so passionate about it. So, um, you know, by joining the organization and then, you know, take it that next step further. And even if you, if you don't volunteer, but share that passion and share the mission of these organizations that goes such a long way. Hmm. Yeah. Another really solid answer there. Um, uh, I think, um, you know, some of the, the benefits people will gain from being a part of, uh, and, and I should say this, being an active member of some of these groups is, uh, you get educated, on a lot of the issues surrounding not just the the game species represented by the name of the the organization but about like you were you were just talking about all these other non-game species that are interconnected through through the ecology behind it all and and uh, all these other these other native role players uh in the ecosystems that that we uh are part of as well and that we like to enter into a, a more intimate way when we go out either through hunting, fishing, hiking, mountain biking, trail running, whatever, where we immerse ourselves in these places. Um, we, we can do so with a better head knowledge based on taking advantage of a lot of the information that is provided by these biologists and, and writers that, that, that work for, pheasants forever that work for national deer association or ducks unlimited uh and 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 and, uh pheasants forever quail forever on and on down the list and so i think that the education that people can can gain from it is uh invaluable as well and i know i've learned a lot from from uh being a member um and would you agree with this one uh marissa the sense of community that can come uh, you know, it's kind of like, uh, that, that kind of fun where, uh, you suffer together and you don't realize how much fun you're having while you're uh, doing a big CRP burn or, <laughs> or, uh, you know, d- uh, digging up invasive plants or something like that. Uh, you know, walking, a walking, a uh, prairie plot or something like that. But, but when you're serving alongside of other passionate people, it gives you a real strong sense of community. Would you agree with that too? 100%. I think community is one of my favorite words to use when I talk about this, uh, you know, the conservation world, um, because we are all in it together and we are all in it for really at the end of the day, the same thing. And so when you join, you know, Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever and other organizations, you become 
a part of that community that's working to make a difference. And that just feels really good. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we talk about that social support and um, the importance that there is for that for people. And I just think when you join these different conservation organizations, it's an opportunity to meet more people, um, to work together to achieve larger goals. Um, and it's, it's just win-win. There's, there's nothing bad about it. So yeah, <laughs> get I... a membership of one, get a membership of them all. Um, it, it all is just incredibly powerful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, make sure if you have not yet joined, uh, go ahead and uh, look look that up. You can find links on the website. Also, if you uh, uh, follow some of the other uh, stuff that Pheasants Forever puts out, they if you remember, they, they run a catalog, a quarterly catalog, or not catalog, magazine. Uh, and uh, if you uh, watch you know, some of the hunting channels on TV, they have a TV show known as The Flush, which uh, I have greatly enjoyed watching in the past. And a lot of times they'll put little commercials in there that will not only show you how to become a member, but get a free gift. Uh, and they have some pretty good free gifts out there. I got a nice Pheasants Forever duffel bag that we use all the time, especially right now in the midst of this crazy move as we keep going back and forth between <laughs> our new house and my parents' house where we're currently staying. But uh, uh, all sorts of all sorts of great stuff um, that, that can be enjoyed. Um, you know, if you become a member and, and a lot of places to, to join up, attend a banquet. If you get invited, you'll have a lot of fun there. And um, there's ways you can participate beyond just uh, donating money, right? Could you give us maybe a, a couple of examples for how people can be, be active as a Pheasants Forever member? Yeah. So once you become a, a member, we can, we'll actually uh, get you involved in local um, email. So you'll have a regional representative in your area who will connect you with local chapters, provide that information um, and get you involved. And if you don't have a chapter in your area, uh, what a great way to to start off that community and, and grow a chapter in your area mm. or get involved, um, you know, in, in another area that you might not be as familiar with. Um, so you can look all of that up on our website, um, pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. Um, it's, it's just a great way to stay in touch with all the happenings, um, on a local and a national scale. Hmm. Yep. That's, that's a great way to, to, uh, wind this one down here. But before we go, uh, do you have any, uh, ways people can follow around, follow along specifically with you, Marissa, any, uh, social media profiles or anything you'd like to, to share? They can follow me on Instagram. Um, kind of a goofy name but uh, once you get to know me you'll you'll figure it out <laughs> um, it's uh, at uh, rosehip underscore um and turtles um so it's a it's a little nod to my my favorite place in the world which is the sand hills of nebraska um, cool. or twitter at nebraska or excuse me at marissa underscore neb for nebraska very cool. So make sure if you want to follow along with all the cool work that Marissa's up to, uh, you go ahead and head over to those places. Well, Marissa, thank you so much for coming on the show. So much great information here for uh, not just our listeners, but for me. I learned a lot uh, in, in our conversation. So thank you very much for, for giving us your time. Thank you, Kent. I really appreciate it. And I hope um, if anybody has more questions that they'll reach out, I'd be happy to answer any you have. Yeah, yeah, please do that. It's so important to uh, get those questions answered and find out more ways that you can be included in the hunting community. 
Um, there's plenty, but you, you may have run across a few hunters out there who, who are kind of selfish of where they hunt and how many people get to hunt in that, but you won't find that here at First Gen Hunter. And, and there's tons of great people like Marissa, like uh, our normal co-host, Brandon, who uh, is busy working right now at the dental practice in Delaware. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, but there's plenty of great people out there who who definitely say the more the merrier and definitely want to help. So make sure you reach out uh, to people like Marissa. And uh, while we talk about them, make sure you head over to thehuntfishlife.com. Check out uh, what uh, Brandon and his brothers, which I just texted Brandon today to set up an interview with the Tri Martin experience here. Get his uh, two brothers on the show sometime here soon. Uh, make sure you check out everything they have going on. Uh, some really uh, funny memes have been circulating lately on their social media pages. So make sure you enjoy those for a good outdoors themed laugh. And uh, when you're all done with that, head over to firstgenhunter.com. You can find all the latest happenings there in my neck of the woods, as well as links to my social media profiles. Thank you again, Marissa. Thank you everyone for listening in. Please leave us a review and until next time, take care and take someone hunting.